Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Podcast. We are glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Testament book, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In an ancient first century letter from a once persecuted Christian turned believer in Jesus named the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit led the spread of Christianity throughout the known world. And 1 Corinthians was a book written in the mid-first century that shows us how to apply the gospel in every area of life. Chapters 1 to 4 speak of unity and today we come to the climax and the conclusion of this section of the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me? And we're going to read 1 Corinthians beginning at chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. It's given to you in love. Please give your attention to it. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When we reviled, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. The Corinthians were immature in their faith. So Paul has just finished explaining to us for two chapters. And they showed their immaturity because they were divided amongst themselves based upon their favorite teacher. And they believed that the gifts that God had given to them, gifts that he talks about earlier in chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, that these gifts were theirs to the full already, that they had them completely and totally. And they said, they thought, huh, I wish Paul was as spiritual as we are because we can discern truth from error. And Paul comes to them And he gives them a stern warning. And the question that he poses to us in this last section of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 is this question. How does grace, which Paul just finished talking to us about the last couple of weeks, according to the grace of God, how does grace liberate you from the tyrannies of comparison and judgmentalism? Because while the Corinthians were professional judges, If you're like me, you're pretty darn good at it too. But how does grace liberate you and liberate me from the tyrannies of comparison and of judgmentalism? Well, he shows us two ways. First, look at your text. Paul reminds us that all things are ours. Everything belongs to us. Now, how can that be? Paul begins with a command. He says, let no one deceive himself. It's a present imperative. It's a progressive imperative, which means people are deceiving themselves. Let no one deceive themselves. If anyone among you thinks you are wise in this age, not wise in general, not wise according to the word, but wise in this age, let him count himself as a fool. And any good Jew and any Greek who has learned from the Jew, their Jewish brothers and sisters in the first century would have known that when Paul uses this word, ezepatatao, it's this funny word in Greek, ezepatatao, the word is to deceive. Paul uses it six times and only Paul. And when the translators from the Hebrew moved it into Greek, they used the same word to describe Eve's deception before the servant. Eve said, 
but the serpent as a potato me, deceived me. And so when Paul says here, listen, why do you think you are wise because you can judge and discern and look down your nose at other people? Don't you know that all things are yours? What do you mean all things are yours? What do you mean? Paul goes on. The teachers of God's word are yours, Apollos, I, Peter, Cephas. We all serve you because we're preaching the gospel to you. But not only that, but the world, life, death, the present, and the future, all is yours. (laughs) What is going on? Let no one deceive himself. Paul takes them all the way back to the garden because in the garden, in the very beginning, God created the world beautiful and good. And he made on day six a creation after his own image, namely man. And in the garden, God set up a relationship with man called the covenant of works. God established a law that said, you shall be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You may eat of any tree in the garden. Enjoy my beautiful creation as you live in obedience to me. But there's one tree that you should not eat of, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in this covenant of works, there were blessings. If you obey me, you will live forever in paradise. You will be whole. You will live with shalom, with true peace, personally, with your wife, your Isha, the woman, and also with the world, and of course with me. But if you break that covenant, you will be removed from the presence of my goodness and grace. You will leave the garden and you will, the text says, surely what? Die. And so, of course, Satan comes and Satan says, did God really say you shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or touch it? Adding to God's word. And, of course, the covenant of works was broken, wasn't it? And Adam suffered the curses of the covenant of works. And God could have been done right then. God could have said man was deceived. Then they're going to suffer the wrath of the curses for all eternity. But God didn't. In the first sermon that God gave to a captive audience of three, that's encouraging when there aren't that many people in church, he said to Satan, to Eve, and to Adam. He preached the first sermon to three people. And he said to Satan, on your belly you shall go. And he said to Eve, you will experience the pain of childbirth and your desire will be for your husband. And he said to Adam, Adam, cursed will be the ground that you work. You will receive the covenant curses. This is covenant language. And not only that, but immediately after that, what did God do? God shed blood. A picture of how one day God would not give up on his beautiful creation or on the people that he made. And he sacrificed an animal. And through the covering of skin of Adam and Eve, by the clothing of that animal, He said to Adam and Eve, there will be one day, someday, he said to the serpent, one day, someday, there will be a seed of Adam and Eve, and you will bruise his head, or bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. A picture of the euangelion, of the the first gospel presentation that God said, I'm not going to give up on you. 
I'm going to redeem you. And through your seed, Eve, will be one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. And then later on, the Jews would have known that, that this word, as a patatao, deceive, would have gone on and would have talked about the covenant God made with Noah, the covenant of, of common grace, that never again will he, will he flood the world. He saved the world through eight people. And then again, the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where he, he split the animals apart. And remember, in, in those days, in a covenant was made, you would split, you would shed the blood of something and you would go between it and you, a, a greater king would say to a lesser king, a suzerain would say to a vassal, I will agree to protect your land in exchange for a thousand chariots. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, this is what's going to happen to you. But of course, in the Abrahamic covenant, when the animals were split, God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And the Lord, through a flaming torch, came between the animals to say, I will be the one who provides the blessings and I will take upon the covenant curses because I will redeem a people from my name. And then later on, the covenant that God made with Moses and the covenant of the law on Mount Sinai in Genesis 19 and 20. I mean, Exodus 19 and 20. God took Moses up on the mountain and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And it will be a covenant that will be greater and build upon the others. Not only will there be a seed who will one day crush the serpent's head, not only will there be land and there'll be a blessing that you'll be a blessing to the nations, and not only will the mark be circumcision, but now I'm going to give you a law by which you are to live obedient and holy lives, to be my ambassadors and my little priests among all the world as you go and you spread the fame of my name. So any of you have ever updated your iPhone, by the way? You know when you update your iPhone, like you get a new update, it just builds on the previous updates? That's what the covenants of Scripture do. They just, it's the same, but more. And so then God has a covenant with, with David, and he builds on the covenant of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, David, there will be one, one day your son, who will come and he will rule forever. It won't be a temporary kingdom. His kingdom will have no end. So not only will there be a people one day, someday, someone who will crush the head of the serpent, not only will there be a people and a land to be a blessing marked off by the covenant sign of circumcision, not only will these people live covenant and holy lives by your law, but there will one day be an eternal kingdom with one who will rule over you forever. And then in Jeremiah 31, Jesus is imagined and pictured the Messiah is going to come to make everything new. And Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Now, when I talk about all those covenants, you say, how do you get that out of one Greek word? Well, notice that what, what Paul says to them, guys, you are bickering over your favorite teacher. You're dividing the church based upon preferences. Notice let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollo, Cephas. Look at it in verse 22. The world or life or death. Or if Paul was just talking about teachers, he would have just stopped after Cephas. But Paul is saying, don't you know that you're the covenant people of God? Don't you know that you're the children of Abraham? All those covenant promises are given to you, kiddos. Don't you know that you are part of something so much bigger if you've been baptized into his church? You're part of his covenant kingdom. 
And God's visible church is the means through which he intends to show the beauty of his glory before a watching world. All of that is yours. And when Christ comes again, he is going to make everything new. Everything is going to be new. There's, there's a video that some of you may have seen on YouTube where um, Denzel Washington is like, he just spontaneously uh, uh, starts speaking to a group of actors in this guild of, of college and high school students. And, and Denzel is telling them, he's giving them career advice. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is what he says. He says, I pray that all of you despite how much you want to, to be an actor, put all of your shoes away under your bed at night so that you've got to get on your knees in the morning when you wake up to find them. And when you're down there, thank God for grace and mercy and understanding because we all fall short of the glory. But if you just start thinking about all the things that you've got to say thank you for, whew, that's a day. That will take up an entire day. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Denzel says, now I've been blessed to make hundreds of millions of dollars in my life. And I can't take it with me. And neither can you. And it is not how much you have, but what you do with what you have. We all have different gifts. Some money, some love, some patience, some the ability to touch people. We all have it, especially those of us who act. So here's the call. You got to use it. You got to share it. That's what counts. And I'm no Denzel Washington, to your great disappointment, but that's the same thing that Paul says to us through me. Use it. You can't take it with you. You are heirs of the covenant of grace. Next week, we're going to celebrate Gage DeLong being baptized, and he's it's a mark of him being brought into the visible people of God, part of the covenant people. All of that is yours. If you could put a number on it, there would not be enough zeros to contain it. You just draw a sideways eight because it would be infinite. That is what Paul is saying to us, church. All of that is yours. And we're not saying that it's going to be yours in this life. We're not saying that if you're sick, you're automatically going to be healed. We're not saying that if you're poor, you're automatically going to have money. We're saying something's far better than that. That the one who broke the curse, namely Adam, and all of us who have inherited Adam's guilt as a result of Adam breaking that curse, one day we'll stand and do stand by faith in the shadow of the greater Adam, the Lord Jesus, who came, who fulfilled all the covenant curses by taking them upon himself. And he lived out all those covenant blessings, the blessing given to Adam in the covenant of works, Jesus fulfilled, the blessing given to Abraham, Jesus fulfilled, the blessing given to Moses and David and the new covenant. Jesus says, as Scott will say here in about 15 minutes, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus invites you into a story, friends, that is so much bigger than you could ever imagine. And it's yours. Do you believe it? I mean, praying for Sally Herbert, for her to be killed of cancer, is, inv is invoking the power of the Lord's name to heal because we're his covenant people. And by grace, he has called us to live distinct and holy lives and do things in the face of modern medicine 
to be so bold as to pray for her healing. And yes, we're gonna pray for her healing because the Lord works through his covenant promises to his people. And even if Sally is not healed, but we pray she is, the Lord will one day, when he comes again, the great day of the Lord, he will be our true judge. Which is Paul's second point. Not only does he remind you that all things are ours in Christ, all those covenant promises are fulfilled in Jesus and are ours, so quit judging. But also, he gives us a totally new paradigm for judging. Look at what he says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, verse 1, chapter 4, and stewards of the mystery of God. This is how you should regard us. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Okay, so we don't have eloquent words. Okay, so you may think that there's better preachers out there somewhere. But don't you know that Paul, Apollos and Peter and I are friends and we all serve the gospel together. We are stewards. And the word there for servant is not uh, the normal word for diaconate. It is the word for an under rower below the hull of the ship, somebody who's out of sight, who's rowing the vessel. And you don't even know that the guy's there. You just see the boat moving. That is what it means to be a servant of Christ. It's not diaconus. It is an under rower. And then we should be stewards of the mysteries of God. What does that mean? It means that we are housemasters. We are just, we have a fiduciary responsibility to serve God's people. That is that we, our job is to preach God's word. The elders of this church, the ruling elders, the teaching elders, the deacons, we are to hold forth God's word for you so that you feast upon that which is truly nutritious for your soul. We are stewards of the mystery of God. This morning in our AM Discipleship class, we are, we are talking about this, and, I, and, and it, I was reminded of, um, in the 19th century, people used to pop their collars, and they used to wear their collars up, not down like we do now. It protected their necks from the wind, and it was often, often uh, the trend that you would wrap your scarf around your neck and you'd pop your collar, drop your scarf around your neck. And um, there was a minister, a Presbyterian minister, who began to wear a white scarf, and he would wear it very tight. And, and as the trends changed, the collars weren't just popped, but they began to be folded down. And so this, this Presbyterian minister began to fold his collar down. And as he folded his collar down, this white collar would show up. And, and that became the way that he would say, hey, I am a steward. I'm a bond slave to Christ. And clergy began to notice this and they began to also wear distinctive dress and they began to wear a collar. And they said, well, as doctors wear lab coats and, and attorneys wear suits and ministers wore the collar. And so out of the Protestant church, ministers began to wear the collar as a symbol of their stewardship of the mysteries of God. And soon the Roman Catholics began to get tired of wearing these hot cassocks that went all the way down to their knees. And they, they saw these Protestant guys and they thought, we want to have some fun. And so these, these, the Roman Catholics began to wear the collar. And now today, when you see a, a, a priest in a collar, you think almost instantaneously of Roman Catholicism. But originally, it's only in the 19th century, it's only 150 years old, that that started with Protestant ministers wearing a collar to be a visual picture of being stewards of the mystery of the gospel. And notice here what the obligations are of Christ's leaders. 
Leaders are first and foremost to be servants of God. They are to be learners. They are to be servants. They receive orders and they fulfill those orders. (laughs) Secondly, they are to teach God's word. And oikonomos, like uh, in the Old Testament, Joseph was an oikonomos to Potiphar, is a housemaster, a house steward. They're the ones who are under orders from the master to govern that house. And ministers of the word are to preach the whole counsel of God. That is their task. That is why they are, therefore, to be found faithful. That is the measuring rod of if they're called to be faithful, if they're found faithful. Do they preach God's word? And leaders also notice that they have something to think through themselves, that they leave judgment to Christ. It's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, Paul says. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, what you think of me ultimately doesn't matter. What I think of me doesn't ultimately matter. It's what Christ thinks of me that ultimately matters. And so if I can just plead with you for a moment, would you please pray that this church always has ministers that are stewards of the mystery of God and who preach God's word and who reserve the day of judgment for the Lord. Because a hundred years from now, none of us are going to be worshiping together at Trinity Presbyterian Church, but if the Lord wills, there will be a body of people worshiping here. Actually, about three miles that way. Pray that the Lord always sustains this church by the faithful proclamation of his word. And pray that he brings that to bear now by beginning to pray now for who you want to nominate as elders and deacons in this church, which we'll do in a congregational meeting next month. Please pray for the Lord to raise up leaders. The strength of this church will always and only rise to the maturity of the leadership. So pray that we would find men who are faithful. Newsweek ran an article not long ago where it took a compilation of letters from men who had been in Afghanistan and that they had written uh, back to their family and their friends. And um, one was written by Marine Corporal Preston Coffer. And he told a friend that, listen, we are talking about the Marines, not the Boy Scouts. And we all joined the service knowing full well what might be expected of us. And he signed off with the Marine motto. Any Marines here know it? Semper Fi, which is Latin for always faithful. And if guys in the military know what it means to always be faithful, how much more should men in the church and women in the church and covenant children in the church? Like, don't you see that there's something bigger going on here than just a church service at Trinity in 2021? Like, you're part of the covenant people of God. Simplify. Let us remain faithful to that. Notice Paul goes on. He says, I've applied all these things to myself in verse 6. And to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn and not go beyond what is written, that is, what is written in the Scriptures. That none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? This is Paul breaking from the plural you to a singular you to make a fictional Corinthian character to say, what do you have? 
What do you possibly have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if though you didn't? It's by grace. Earlier, Paul quotes from Job chapter 5, and he says, uh, earlier he um, says up in chapter 3, he says that he catches the wise in their craftiness, a reference back to the serpent in Genesis 3. And then again, he quotes Psalm 94. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, but they are futile. They are but a breath, a ruach. And Paul says, already you have all you want. One of the great problems of, of, of our hearts is that, um, as someone pointed out this morning in our, in our discipleship class, is that the problem is not with technology, the problem is not with finances, the problem is not with other means, the problem is with the attitudes of the human heart, with the purposes of the heart, as the text says. Harry Truman once said when he was president, there's no end to what you can do if you don't really care who gets the credit. <laughs> Not long ago, um, at a baseball game, at Chapacana Field, the Seattle Mariners, like, they shut out the, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0, to zero, and, and, and Felix Hernandez was preaching. He preached for seven innings straight and struck everybody out. It was amazing. It's incredible incredible run. And then after he hit his 100 pitch count, they took him out and the reliever uh, Medina came in and Medina pitched an inning. And then after Medina uh, pitched, then uh, the, uh, they scored five runs. And it was amazing. Then they put in two more relievers to finish out the game. And the next morning in the article, there's this great article and everybody who was at the game knew that Felix Hernandez did all the work. And the game was credited to Medina because he was there and he pitched the inning when they went and scored five runs. He got the credit for the victory. But Hernandez did all the work. And for one teammate, he only pitched one inning. He got the official win, but it was Hernandez who laid the foundation. And so it is with so much of what you do. Guys who drive trucks to set up, one day we are going to look back and we are going to say in 15 years, we are here because brothers got up at 6.30 a.m. and got into a truck and drove a trailer to set up at worship. We are here because hosts of community groups pulled out the coffee and the tea to welcome people into their home. And yes, their laundry was strewn across the living room, but so what? We just do life together. Like, we will say in years to come that there are people who they've pitched for seven innings straight. They did all the work. And another generation is going to get the credit. Glory to God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. But you got to quit bickering together, and you have to recognize that everything is ours because we are caught into something far bigger as the covenant people of God. And Paul gets biting in his sarcasm here in these verses. He says, this is all sarcastic, by the way, in verse 8 all the way down to verse 13. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that you might share a little bit of your wealth with us, your rule with us. All of that is Paul being biting in his sarcasm to say, you want to have a new paradigm of leadership toward your leaders? Then you judge them for being faithful. And if you want to have a new paradigm for judgment, then you need to recognize that you yourself, though you think you were much, Jesus called you, as the preparation of worship says, not because you're the most numerous, Deuteronomy chapter 7, but because the Lord set his love on you. 
And everything that you have comes as a result of his grace. So our attitude of judgment toward our leaders is we should judge them faithful in preaching God's word as those who are stewards of the mysteries of God. And the attitude that we should have toward ourselves is that we shouldn't think less of ourselves. We should just think about ourselves less. And as you leave today, the youth are going to hand you a little book. Some of you have it. And if you want another copy, please take it. For every adult, every teenager in this church is a little book called uh, The Joy of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a little book by Tim Keller. And I encourage you to take that book and read it this week. It's, it's his exposition of this small section of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But I want you to read it this week. And I want you to also think of Paul's fatherly affection that he has toward this first century church and he also has towards you. Because notice beginning in verse 14, there's a radical shift of tone. And Paul moves from being sarcastic and biting in his um, irony. You become great when we're slandered. We're the ones who are subjected to the ridicule of the world. We are like martyrs before the beasts in the Colosseum of Rome. But you are wise. Do you hear the sarcasm? We become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And then he says in verse 14, listen, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but I write them to admonish you as my beloved children. Because you have countless, in Greek, pedagogos, countless tutors, countless advisors. The problem is you probably have too many. <laughs> you don't have any fathers. And I'm like a father to you, Paul says. And I, that's why I've sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways. So imitate me. So Trinity, just as the first century church heard Paul's fatherly affection, so also hear the fatherly affection of your Father in heaven who says to you, I've given you a covenant. I know that it's so easy to be deceived. But come, sins. Come again in faith. If you are here and you don't yet know Christ, then today, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, I, we all invite you to believe. You're part of something far bigger than yourself because God, though the world is searching for all sorts of solutions, it is found in the finished work of Jesus who will make everything new. There's no Stoic philosopher named Diogenes who said, I am rich and I am a king. Speaking of the self-reliance of the ancient world, and how much more true that is of my heart today and of yours. But as members of God's covenant, we put down our bickering, we come together in unity, we feel the fatherly affection of your Savior who loves you and he draws you in like a hen longs to draw her chicks in and says to you, the climax of a section on unity in 1 Corinthians, be united by the grace of God have a totally new paradigm for judging. See that it was Christ who was the true fulfiller of the covenant of works, who obeyed his Father perfectly for you. See that it was Christ who obeyed the law perfectly for you. See that it was Christ who, yes, took upon the sign of circumcision himself, but also so that all righteousness would be fulfilled, was baptized for you, so that the mark today of God's covenant people might be baptism. See Christ, who was the one who, through the shedding of blood, like those animals when Abraham went into covenant with God, 
like the animals that were shed in the garden when, they, when God covered Adam and Eve. It is Christ who covers you with the skin that is not your own, a righteousness that is not your own. And we come to the table again professing that truth. So come repentant. Come having examined your heart. And come in joy, knowing that all things, mystery of mysteries, are yours. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to recognize that in the covenant you have made with us, that we receive by faith in your Son, we may no longer be deceived. And while we are not freed from the power of sin in this life, we are freed from its penalty because of the finished work of Jesus, who is the true and greater Adam, true and greater Abraham, true and greater Moses, true and greater David. And so as we prepare to come to your table, O oh, Father, would you help us to come in joy that in Christ you've given us all things that we might walk in joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.